Hey everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that in special recognition of the start of the World Series this week, I've gone into the T4C archives to re-release a couple of very relevant and super cool interviews I did earlier this year. The first is with Michael Kay, a sports journalist who's been the voice of the New York Yankees for almost 30 years. And the second is with Eve Rosenbaum, a young woman who is the manager of international scouting for the 2017 World Series champions, the Houston Astros. By the way, I did both of these interviews before the 2019 season had even begun. Well, little did I know then that the New York Yankees and the Houston Astros would be the last two teams standing in the American League and would face off in the American League championship. And as you may know by now, over the weekend, the Astros clinched the series in six games and will now take on the Washington Nationals in the World Series, which starts on Tuesday. And even if you're not interested in sports or baseball, I have no doubt that you'll still enjoy listening to these two top-notch professionals who are incredibly candid about the kind of sacrifices they've had to make over the years to achieve the success they've had. One last note. A few months after doing this T4C interview with me, Michael had to take six weeks off to recover from surgery to his vocal cords. As you'll hear for yourself, Before the surgery, Michael had been burning the candle at both ends for years, juggling his television and radio responsibilities. I am so grateful to Michael that he took the time to speak with me earlier this year and hope you'll join me in sending out our very best wishes to Michael that he's been able to make a full recovery. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you like sports and you're interested in journalism, maybe specifically in sports journalism, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is not only a sports journalist, but he's also the voice of the New York Yankees. Here's Andrea Koppel. She steps in, right-handed batter. She's had a rough day, 0 for 3. Yankees all believe in Koppel. They think that she can hit, and they're going to stick with her. But before I introduce you to the incredible Michael Kay, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that we blast out bright and early Monday mornings to give you a preview of all the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org and sign up. Now, my latte lovers and collegiate cappuccino quaffers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is the one and only Michael Kay, the multi-Emmy award-winning Yankees play-by-play announcer for the Yes Network, who also hosts the network's center stage series and its various programming specials. The 2019 season will be Michael's 29th year broadcasting Yankees baseball. 
The Yes Network is the exclusive local TV home of the 27-time world champion New York Yankees. The Michael K. Show, a sports talk show broadcast weekdays on ESPN Radio 98.7 FM in New York, which K. co-hosts with Don LaGreca, has been simulcast live weekday afternoons on Yes since February 2014. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Andrea, thanks for having me. I have to ask you, because this is the question I ask all my guests, are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm going to tell you something that will surprise you. I'm 58 years old, and I have never in my life had a cup of coffee. How is that even possible? Well, I've never had a condiment either, so I'm a little odd. I do get my caffeine from tea, but I've never had coffee. I love the smell of it, but I've never had it. And is that because this, oh, you like the smell, but why haven't you tried it? I wish we were doing this in person because I would really try to get you to have a sip. Well, I kind of bounce off the walls on 24 hours a day, so I'm, I'm sure I don't need strong. My wife is a big coffee drinker, but I think that if I added coffee into the mix... I don't know if I could function. Okay, but you do like caffeine, even if it's in tea. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Then we can continue our conversation. (laughs) Michael, I want to begin our virtual networking coffee today with a confession to you. Okay. All right. I am a failed sports reporter. And my first broadcast TV job, I started in radio, but my first job in local TV was in Baltimore, Maryland in the late 80s. And you, of course, know that Baltimore is a pretty big baseball town. Now, of course, they're also a big football town. But at the time, they only had one big national sports team, and that was the Baltimore Orioles. And I was a cub reporter. And so they sent me out to report on what was a pretty fluffy feature And I'm guessing you may have covered one or two of these kinds of stories in your day, too. And the story was that the all-time attendance record at Memorial Stadium, the old Baltimore baseball stadium, was going to be broken that night. So I went out with my cameraman to Memorial Stadium a few hours before the game so that we could kind of figure out what our angle was going to be. And we wanted to talk to some of the ushers to find out where the biggest fans like to sit. And so we were up in the stands off left field, way up there. And I was talking to one of the ushers and batting practice was going on. And just as I turned to face the field to say something to my cameraman, who was a couple rows below me, I caught a line drive with my face, Michael. Oh. And needless to say, it knocked me off my feet. It hit me just beneath my left eye, it came a quarter of an inch from taking out my eye. And the worst thing that happened is that I got a tear in my retina. Now, after my parents found out that I was fine, I hadn't broken any limbs or lost an eye. The question was, who hit the ball? Do you have any guesses? I hope it wasn't Cal Ripken Jr. It was Cal Ripken Jr. Oh, my. So it was a well-struck ball. It was a very well-struck ball. And I actually got a signed ball from him after that saying, Dear Andrea, I hope you feel better. But I don't know. How many stories like that have you heard? Not not that many. I mean, usually, like at Yankee Stadium, you're really not allowed in the stands with a camera crew. I mean, that's, that's not allowed maybe for that specific reason. I don't even know if you can do it in many ballparks now, but you're really fortunate. I mean, it's hard to say that you detach your retina and you're fortunate, but 
for what could have happened. I mean, you could have lost your eyesight. You could have could have lost your eye. You could have been killed. I mean, you're a very, very lucky woman. So I wanted to share that with you to explain why I never really got into the game. So yeah, I, I don't want, blame you. <laughs> I want you to please forgive me if I start showing my ignorance pretty early on. Okay. So let's start with any baseball horror stories from your many years reporting on the game. You know what? I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish, but I've had very few horror stories. I, I've loved the game since I was a kid. I love all sports, but baseball is my number one. It seems like a fairy tale, but since I was nine years old, kid growing up in the South Bronx, about 10 minutes from Yankee Stadium, the only job I ever wanted was to be the Yankee announcer. So it's hard for me to have horror stories when I'm living my dream on a daily basis. So I'm pretty fortunate when it comes to baseball. Well, I am so thrilled for you that you got to realize that dream. And I know that you wear several hats right now, both on and off season when the Yankees are playing. And as I said in the introduction, you're doing play by play in addition to hosting center stage. Let's start with the first hat with the Yankees where you're heading into your 29th year broadcasting Yankees baseball. For the benefit of those listeners who may be sports fans, but not necessarily appreciate what a play-by-play announcer does, can you break that down for us? The first 10 years of the stretch that I've been doing Yankee games, I did on radio. And since then, since the Yes Network came about in 2002, I've been doing television and they're really two completely different jobs. So when you're the play-by-play guy on radio, it's a lot of description. And the play-by-play guy on radio is much more the star of the broadcast than the analyst because you have to be ultra-descriptive. You're the eyes and the ears of the listener. So you have to describe every single thing you see. And back then, I guess I got a, a modicum of fame. Every game, I would describe the Yankee uniform. Home white pinstripes, midnight blue cap, interlocking MY on the left chest, no number on the back, no name. So then when you move over to TV... It becomes a different job where the analyst really is the star and the play-by-play guy is almost a straight man or the setup. So you don't have to be that descriptive because you see everything on the screen, but you want to set up your analysts so they can explain why what just happened happened. So uh, again, it's the same job, the same job description, play-by-play guy. But again, in radio, different job than it is on TV right now, a basketball spin on it. When you're doing TV play-by-play, you're almost like the point guard. So you're dishing out assists. You're not scoring the points, but you're kind of dishing out assists. So that's pretty much what I do on a day-to-day basis, dish out assists to the people I work with. So how do you prepare for that? What kind of homework do you still have to do? You've got 28 years under your belt. What do you do to prepare for each game and for the start of each season? I used to work with John Sterling on the radio for 10 years, and, and John's going on 80 and he's entering his 31st year doing the Yankee games. And he once told me, I've been preparing for this my whole life. So the fact that I live in New York City and I do a daily talk show, I'm certainly prepared when the season starts about the Yankees. I've been following them on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis. So nothing that the Yankees do should take me by surprise. Obviously, before a game, you try to talk with as many players, what's going on that day, what's on their mind, if anything's bothering them injury-wise. But for the other team, you really have to do a deep dive. The fortunate thing about baseball, unlike the other sports, is that the Yankees will play a team for three or four games. So it's not like in basketball where you have to prepare for a different team every time 
your team plays that team. Like the Yankees will start the season with three games against your Baltimore Orioles, no Cal Ripken Jr. So I've really got to do a deep dive and study the Orioles, see what they're about, what they've done last year, how they got to this point, how they did in spring training. So you go through that for every single series. What's news? What's happening? What's the latest trend? Stuff like that. So there's a lot of prep work that goes into it because you don't want to be surprised by anything that happens on the field. You want a player to show up and you have no idea who that player is. So the same thing with my center stage interview show. Somebody once told me you should never ask a question that you really don't know the answer to. So for center stage, I might read six, 700 pages of research on one guest. And they might tell you something that you, you don't know, but then you have to follow up on it and just be prepared about their background and things like that. So I try to have the same amount of preparation for both jobs. Fantastic. What are you doing when you're calling the game from inside Yankee Stadium? Where are you situated? And are you watching it live looking down at the field or are you watching it on TV? Well, it's a great question. I'm a broadcaster that likes to work live off what's happening on the field. A lot of people work off the monitor. When there's a play, like a long drive where a guy leaps at the fence and tries to make a catch, sometimes that's hard to see with the naked eye. So I will switch down quickly to the monitor to see if there's a better shot. But for the most part, I do work live off the field. I just have a a better feeling doing that. And where I'm situated for each game is right behind home plate. And I always joke around because when I was a kid, Growing up, going to Yankee Yankee games, my family didn't have much money, so the, the seats that I could afford were called general admission, and they were $1.50. And I would always find a seat in the last row of the upper deck behind home plate. So essentially, I had the same seat that I had as a 9 or 10-year-old, same angle, but a lot closer. So I'm, I'm, I'm behind home plate for every game. And were you practicing your calls from up there when you were yes. a kid? Much to the annoyance of the buddies that I went to the games with. (laughs) You know, Michael, I've always been so amazed by how announcers like you are able to remember the plays that happened not just six innings earlier, but maybe 16 games earlier when so-and-so kind of threw it to so-and-so and and then this guy tripled or whatever. How do you do that? Do you take notes during the game so that you can go back and refresh your memory? Or is this just kind of part of your secret sauce? I do keep score of each game. So you have a detailed scorecard with information on that you might use. And then you say every at bat, you write down exactly what they did. I'm not a great record keeper or bookkeeper, so a lot of it is just from memory. But it's funny, Andrea, from year to year, I don't remember that great. It's like at the end of the year, I kind of etch-a-sketch it and <laughs> shake my head and it's out because there's not much room up there. So I remember important things. And obviously, with the, it's an easier job now with Google and, and all the search engines where you could call something up in a second. In the old days, you couldn't do that. You'd have to rifle through books. So your memory could be right on your iPad right now. So that, that's the way it works. You, you remember that, oh, something might have happened like that last year. And all you have to do is just Google it and it's in front of me. So it makes you sound like a genius, but really the search engine is a genius. Well, that's good. I mean, listen, it's, it's amazing that you can remember as much as you do, but it's also nice to know that you're human. What is a typical day like for you during the six months or so that baseball is in season between April and September? Well, let's say a typical weekday. I will probably wake up at eight o'clock so that I could take my kids to school. My son is four. He's in preschool. My daughter's six. She's in kindergarten. 
So you drop them off about nine, get up every day, no matter how late I got back the night before, because I don't get a chance to spend that much time with them during the week, because when they're back from school, I'm already at the ballpark. So when I get back, I start to download the papers on my iPad, go down to the basement in my house and try to work out for an hour. And while I'm working out on the life cycle or the elliptical, I read everything that I have to read, especially for the radio show. Then I'll spend obviously some time with my wife and I leave my house at about one o'clock to get the radio show. So at Yankee Stadium, the radio show is, is done from a um, done from a trailer in loading dock. So I go there and I'll start to talk with people back at the radio show at about two o'clock. Then we go on the air at 2.55 and I stay on the air until about 6.22. The show goes till seven, but during baseball season, I go to 6.22. Then I run out of the trailer walk briskly to the elevator, which will take me up to the broadcast level where our booth is. Usually I get up there about 6.35. We'll tape the open. I'll have everything prepared because during the commercial breaks on the radio, I'm writing out my scorecard and things like that. Then the game starts at 7.05. Usually the game takes about three hours on average. And I'll get out of the ballpark about 10.30. Drive home takes about 45 minutes. Walk into my house about 11.30, 11.15 if it's a fast game. Maybe just watch some TV to decompress. Hopefully my wife is still up. Usually she's sleeping by then. Kiss the kids on the forehead. Go to bed. Rinse and repeat. Do it all over again at 8 o'clock in the morning. I listened to an interview that you gave, Michael, in which you said that between April and September, you may be talking eight hours a day. Yeah. How do you keep your energy up? It's all I've ever known. So I guess I have a broadcast version of, of Stockholm Syndrome. That's just how I was raised. I mean, I've always had these two jobs. And before that, I was a newspaper writer. I started the New York Post. And I had a, um, a sports editor who was a real slave driver who always wanted you to make the extra call, do a stakeout, some, whatever. My parents instilled it in me. Just be a hard worker. Don't let anybody outwork you. I don't think of it as like, how do I keep my... I mean, that's just... It's, it's what I do. I don't want it to sound like I just dismiss it, but I, I don't know any other way. But I will be honest with you as I get older and the season wears down and you're in August and September, it becomes more difficult, especially you throw a family into the equation. You know, I got married nine years ago and before that it was just all about me. I didn't have to worry about anybody else. But once the kids came along and that started six years ago, then it really changes perspective. So you get more exhausted the more you throw into your life. So at some point, I'll have to make a decision because you can't keep doing everything for this long because I don't think you can physically survive. Yeah, I'm guessing your weekends before kids were spent maybe sleeping in, enjoying reading the New York Times, the whole paper. And now with two little kids, you're lucky if you can sleep until 7 a.m. Right, because in all honesty... When you have a day off, like occasionally Fox will do the game on Saturday, so I'm completely off. Well, that doesn't mean that I could sit in the house and sleep until noon and vegetate. That The kids don't see you all week. So you have kids, there's a responsibility to that too. So I try to spend as much time with them and, and my wife as you can. So off days really aren't off days. Sometimes off days are more exhausting than work days. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that. I know that feeling. Michael, I have no doubt that there are a ton of Java junkies whose dream job may well be the one you've got to be a sports announcer. Can you give them a little bit of a reality check in that what are the upsides? And I'm sure there are many. And what are the downsides 
the things that you wish you knew before you'd stepped into the booth almost 30 years ago? The one thing that I will tell you is because there are so few of these jobs, it is an absolute cutthroat business. And with the advent of social media, it becomes extremely nasty. So even the people that don't want your jobs feel that they're experts at your jobs. And they certainly have the access now to tell the world that you're the worst, that you're terrible and they hate you. So, I mean, that adds a different level of pressure as well. That Andrew, that wasn't the case when I started this 30 years ago. There wasn't social media, so it wasn't as personal. You'd have to deal with the radio and TV columnist in the paper, but that's just one or two of them. Now, there are millions of people that, in essence, think that they're experts at this, so they can critique you. And also, your, your bosses watch that stuff. They, they see how the public reacts to you and things like that. My advice to everybody listening would be, if you're going to get into this business, you really have to have the thick skin because there are a lot of people that are aiming for your job that will do anything to get your job. And there are a lot of people that will critique your job as well. So that would be that would be one of the negatives, because uh, I, I have to be honest with you. And I've gotten better at as I get older. I'm a kid from the South Bronx. And my first reaction when I'm punched would be to punch back. That's not a real smart thing to do, because that's exactly what they're trying to get you to do when they criticize you on social media. And I used to parry with them. Now I just ignore it. So that would be a negative. Also, another negative would be just the travel aspect. That's really tough. The travel aspect is, is, is extraordinarily difficult, especially when you have a family. So not only are you not there to take them to school or you see your wife, but you spend most of your time in hotel rooms, different hotel rooms, and wondering where you are when you wake up. The positives are you're doing what you love. You're doing what a lot of people do for fun and you're getting paid for it. So, I mean, that's, that's some of the things that come to my mind, but uh, it's not, it's not an easy profession to break into. There's so many people that want to do it. There's so few jobs. So there's a lot of disappointment. I just remember that when my parents knew I wanted to be the Yankee announcer, but they, they never discouraged me from that. But the problem was, is that they said, just have a fallback. So my fallback was I became a writer. I think I could have done PR or media relations or things like that. So I had something that if it didn't work out on the air, that I could fall back on. That would be my biggest piece of advice. Chase your dream, but it's also possible that you have to pay bills. So have something that you can make a living at while you're chasing your dream. Yeah, absolutely. You need a plan B. Michael, I want to pick up on what you said about how tough it is to break into this industry. What advice do you have for those young people, those young aspiring announcers or sports reporters Where can they look for those jobs? What advice do you have for them? It's hard for me to give advice because the path that I took is one that's really not traveled that much. Because although I wanted to be a broadcaster, Andrea, when I got got out of Fordham University, really I had a thick Bronx accent. I sounded like Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Cotter. And the advice that I got from people, well, you have to go to a small radio station probably in the Midwest and work your way back. And I just knew myself, that wasn't me. That wasn't anything that I could really deal with. So I became a newspaper man. And through that, I somehow worked my way into the broadcast side of it. For those that might not take that route, and again, that route is a very odd route, I'd say that any way you can get on the air, if you're in college, you get on the air as much as you can. Don't punch a clock. Just go out there and do it. Whenever there's airtime, grab it. 
you almost have to put your personal life on hold. Somebody's going to outwork you, and the person that outworks you is going to be the one that gets noticed. Because I've always said, other than a rare outlier, people are pretty much equal in talent, and they'll get better as they are, they're on the air more. So the more reps you could get, the more tape you could get, the more time you can get on the air. If you can get a job in a small radio station, you work your way up. And you gotta you got to make contacts. Wherever you go, introduce yourself. That person could end up helping you one day. That person could be your your entree into a into a better job. So it's a very complicated matrix to to get to a big time job. And again, the way I did it was I don't think it's been done before. And I'm not saying that I'm anything special. So much fortune was on my side and luck that it just turned out that I'm here. But to do it the way I did it, I don't know if that could be recreated. Again, it was it was total horseshoe luck. How can you learn to be a great play by play baseball announcer? I think that the more you do something, the better you'll get. And I think that you should listen to other play-by-play announcers. And although I wouldn't call it theft, I think that you take the best from other people and try to incorporate it with your own style and listen to the best ones. Listen to the Marv Alberts, listen to the, the Bob Costas, listen to Joe Buck and see how they do it. I think the most important thing for a play-by-play guy it's nice to have good pipes, good voice. It's not the most important thing because I, I certainly don't have those. I think it's all about rhythm. And the best piece of advice that anybody ever gave me was the longtime voice of the Yankees, Mel Allen. When I first got on the radio, I was broadcasting. I really wasn't communicating. And he said to me, he said, when you're on TV, you're just talking. When you're on radio, you become a broadcaster. He said, so here would be my advice to you. He said, who listens to everything you do on the air? And I said, well, my mom does. He goes, okay, so when you're on the radio, make believe you're talking to your mom. Make believe you're just talking to her. And if you just talk to her, then everybody that's listening will be thinking that you're talking to them. And I think that's a a good bit of advice. Some people go into Joe announcer voice, and it works for some, but it comes off, I think, as artificial and really, I don't know, stuffy. But if you come off and you just act like you're talking to your best friend, sitting in the stands talking to your best friend, then the people that are watching or listening will think that you're talking to them. And I think that makes it much more personal. That is such great advice. And I like the way that you distinguish between someone who's broadcasting versus someone who is talking. And I think that, that you can hear that all the time with folks on radio and people who are tracking television packages and things like that. So I think that's fantastic advice. One other question I have for you that is related to kind of deconstructing some of the skills that aspiring young announcers and sports reporters have. For those young listeners who may still be in college right now, may even be in high school, It's easier if they're in college. Are there classes or things that they could take in school that you think would help make them better once they get their first job? I really believe, and I I don't know that everybody in the business agrees with me, Andrea. I believe that you should learn how to write. I think writing is the most important tool. And I just think that if you can write, you can get a job anywhere in our business because writing is needed. And I have this little rule that a lot of people don't have. Whenever I do an open 
or a tease or a long form piece that isn't a the game. I never read anything on the air that I don't write. I want to write it myself. And that was taught to me by Al Troutwick, who I used to work with at the MSG Network. He said, don't read anything that you don't write. He said, because it's not in your voice. So I think if you write, if you take writing courses, and I think even for people before college, this is what I tell a lot of people as well. Read as much as you can. The more you read, the better your vocabulary is going to be. The better vocabulary you have, the better you're going to be able to communicate. The more words you have at your disposal, the better you can be descriptive in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And I think I never talk down to an audience. Sometimes I get criticized on my radio show. Why do you use such highfalutin words? And I said, why should I dumb down what I'm saying? Let people know what words are. Words are important. I think the more words you have at your disposal, the better broadcaster you become. And by that, Michael, do you mean reading more than just the sports pages? Yes. Actually reading reading books. Reading books. I never liked reading fiction. And sometimes I got pushback on that in high school and college. I preferred reading biographies. And I would tell teachers, I want to learn something. I don't want to read fake stuff. And they said, you don't understand. Good fiction, you are learning stuff. And I've gotten older. I guess I understand that. But I still lean toward real life biographies or something like All the President's Men or something like things that really happen. But fiction is a way to go, too, because you could still you learn the language. I mean, the language is what you're communicating in. And the more writers that you read and the more different perspectives you get, I think it broadens what you think. Absolutely. Michael, I want to flash back to when you were an undergrad at Fordham University. You got your BA in communications. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I mean, I knew what the dream was. The dream was to be the Yankee announcer, but I also had that problem that I sounded like I I came out of the gutter. So that was an issue. I mean, in college, kind of cast adrift. You know what you want to be, and then you're trying to rationalize that with real-life situations. And I was always very rational as a kid, Andrea, so that's why at nine, rather than saying I wanted to play for the Yankees, I knew I was not a good player at nine years old. And I said, well, in order for me to be involved with the Yankees, I want to be their broadcaster. The dream was to broadcast the games, but I knew that by taking communication courses and a lot of journalism courses, I would be involved in some way, as I said earlier, either as somewhere in public relations or advertising, stuff like that, or writing. And it turned out that the first job that I could get out of college was as a clerk at the New York Post. I was filing pictures and getting people lunch and then writing on my own time. And then I was promoted to writer. So that's why I say my, my journey is one that's odd and certainly not one that I would recommend for people because I don't know if it could happen again. It's kind of a, a shot in the dark sort of thing. But I definitely knew I wanted to be involved in media in some way. What about extracurricular activities during college? I think I know you were working at, at the Fordham uh, radio station. Was that something that in hindsight you believe actually helped you to start honing the skills that were valuable when you got out into the job market? I think that my time spent at WFUV, and I also was a sports editor of the paper, so that that gave me writing at Fordham as well. But my time spent at WFUV was probably more beneficial to my future than any class I took at Fordham. That's not a knock on the classes I took at Fordham, but for what I wanted to do, time that I spent at the radio station, the people that I met, my lifelong friends were made at that radio station. And just to get, as I said, to get the reps and to be on the air 
And to be on the air in New York on a 50,000 watt radio station, I think to this day, it still pays benefits. Michael, I just have a couple final questions for you. And these are questions that I try to ask all my time for coffee guests. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Because we've all had them. And I want to show our young listeners that even people like Michael Kay, who made it to the top of his industry, fell down and had to pick himself up. And more importantly, how you got through the other side and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. After the years in newspapers, I unexpectedly got the job to do the Yankee games on radio. And the first year on the air, remember the only other sports announcing that I had done was at Fordham. So by the time I got the Yankee radio job was 92. That was 10 years after Fordham. I was stiff. I was nervous. The play-by-play was very, very tough. And people were writing letters to the radio station, how bad I was, how could they have given me this job. And you really start to doubt yourself. And I'll, I'll always remember this one gentleman, the guy who hired me at WABC, his name was Don Belukas. And he called me into his office and he said, listen, I know you're struggling right now. He said, but I got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, are you giving up on yourself? And I said, no, I never give up on myself. And he goes, if you don't give up on yourself, I will never give up on you. He said, I made a commitment to you and I will stay with you and you will get through this and you will make it work. And that gave me the confidence that I didn't have this sort of Damocles hanging over my head, that it was going to end at any moment, that the guy who was my boss was in my corner. And I think that when you're struggling, you always have to have somebody that's in your corner. And this guy told me, stop worrying, just go out and get better. And I worked at it and I got better. And you have to fight the demons and you have to fight the doubters. And again, this was before social media. It would have been worse then where you could look, look down at your phone and see how much people hate you. So I just think that you have to have a good support staff. You have to have a good family around you to tell you that things will get better. Because if you fall into that abyss of doubt, then you know what? You're going to end up failing. But the strong words of the person who hired me, that he was still had my back, that got me through it. Did you mean it when you said that you didn't have self-doubt? Or were you trying just to kind of keep a stiff upper lip? No, no, I, I definitely had self-doubt. But he said what I quit, I would never quit on myself. I mean, the way I was raised, you don't quit on anything. You keep doing it until you get it right. So yeah, I doubt, I doubt it. But anything I ever do, Andrea, I will never, ever, ever fail because of lack of work. I will <laughs> never, ever take the shortcut. And then, and then you could point out, oh, that's why Michael botched that up because he didn't put in the time. But I'm a human being. And if anything, I have thin skin and I doubt myself. And I'm, I'm harder on myself than most people. But in terms of the work, when he said, will you ever give up on yourself? No, I wouldn't give up. But I certainly had serious doubt. That's for sure. Yeah. By the way, thank you so much for sharing that. That was, I think, Again, we've all had, if you get long in the tooth enough, you we've all had these experiences and it stings. And I totally agree with you that you need to have a thick skin. And if you don't have a thick skin, just try to keep putting one foot in front of the other 
and eventually it will be in the rearview mirror and you will be experiencing some kind of a success that will help you get over that next hurdle. Andrea, my, my skin is so thin you could see through it. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? It's tough. You know what? I, I try to ignore it. But my first fight or flight reaction is to fight. And the best thing is to fly. It just le- let it go. doesn't mean anything. The only ones that count are the people that pay you. And if they're happy with your work, then that's fine. But this is the, this is the wrong business to be in if you're very sensitive. And I, yeah. I have learned that. I've made it work. I've been able to play mind games to get away from it. But in life, you want everybody to love you. But this is not a business where everybody loves you. The most popular people on the air, there are people that despise them. So you could have 100 people tell me how great I am. And if one person tells me you stink, that's the one that I remember. That's the one I want to win over. So maybe it drives me more because I want to I want to change the opinion of that one person that hates me. Mm, gosh, that is that is a tough way to uh, to make a living. Michael, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Fordham and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I don't know if I would change anything because then I wouldn't be where I am right now. It's funny. The advice that my parents gave me was what I would give myself. And I already had that in my back pocket. Work harder than anybody else. And I'm I'm a firm believer. Every time I talk to college classes or anything like that, Andrea, I always say, don't let anybody outwork you. Because talent, that's one thing. But working hard, anybody can do that. That's what I apply to baseball as well. The baseball player, there are certain levels of talent that a baseball player has. But the one thing that you can't control the outcome, but you can control the effort. And I would tell myself, continue to work hard because I think that my talent, if I have any, is baseline talent. It's nothing extraordinary. It's nothing that would go, wow, what a voice. Wow, he's amazing. I just think that I work harder than anybody. And that's always been my credo. And I would go back to 18-year-old Michael and tell him, just do what you're doing and work harder than anybody else. You are on the right path because if I worked any less than I did, I would not be where I am right now. Uh, again, I really believe that my bulldog attitude has got me where I am. Well, I have to say, Michael, I have no doubt you are being incredibly modest because you don't get to the top of any industry without smarts, without talent and without grit. And I think you have exhibited all of that during the last 40 minutes that you and I have been talking. Now, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here because that was the last question. But I have a final request. Always on time to grab coffee. That I know every play by play announcer has a signature that they've developed for a home call. Rate and and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Really so do me the honor of your special home run call for the end of the time for coffee show. Okay. Here's Andrea Koppel. She steps in, right-handed batter. She's had a rough day, 0 for 3. Yankees so believe in Koppel. They think that she can hit, and they're going to stick with her. 3-2, to two, Yankees are down, bottom of the ninth inning. One man on, two men out. Furlander's on the mound. Stares in at the catcher. Here's the pitch to Koppel. She swings deep to left field. There it goes. 
See ya! A two-run home run for Koppel. A two-run home run that gives the Yankees the win. Koppel is the hero with a walk-off home run. Oh, my God. I love that. You end up being the hero. Oh, my gosh, Michael. I I absolutely love that. I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are, as they say in the Jewish community, a real mensch, Michael. You are an incredibly talented, wonderful mentor for young, aspiring journalists. And frankly, for anyone who wants to know what it takes to get to the top of their industry. Thank you so, so much. And I hope this is a great season for you and for the New York Yankees. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.